At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really thrilled to have a really special guest with me today. I have with me Dr. Maxime Kennison, who is a professor of anesthesiology and the chair of the Department of Anesthesiology at UCLA. Now, Dr. Kennison gave a really fascinating Grand Rounds talk here at Hopkins a while back about artificial intelligence in anesthesiology. And I just thought it was so interesting that I reached out to him and I said, you know, can I talk you into coming on the show? And he was so kind and agreed to do it. So I'm really excited to talk with him today. First, just a quick reminder, we have CME now available on ACRAC through CMEFI, a great company that makes it really easy for you to get CME. So if you need it, just go to the website at ACRAC.com and follow the links to get your CME credits. All right. Uh, Dr. Kennison, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jed. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so let's start by just telling the audience a little about you. You have a, a I don't want to say atypical because it was probably very typical um, at, for you, but for a lot of people out there um, who never don't really know much about training in other countries, you kind of have that background. So talk a little bit about where you trained, how you trained, what your careers looked like, and how you got where you are. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I was, I was first, I was born and raised in France, in Paris, I grew up in Paris. Um, I, uh, I'm the first, if you will, in my family to be a physician. Uh, nobody has ever been physician in my family. Actually, I'm the first generation to be a high school graduate. Um, I chose to become a physician in France. It's a different healthcare system. It's a single payer system where everybody has access to healthcare. Uh, healthcare is considered to be, a uh, a right. Everybody has access to it. It's not a privilege. You don't have a multi, I mean, you have some private payers, but everyone has a single payer system to begin with. So I chose to be a physician in this kind of system. Uh, I trained, I went to medical school in Paris. I was not a very good student in high school. Uh, and then I really fell in, at first I felt very privileged to be admitted in medical school. And, uh, and, and so when, as soon as I became admitted there, I, I really became passionate with it. And uh, I did my residency in France, in Lyon. And then in 2004, I went to the U.S. for the first time to do a critical care fellowship in research in Pittsburgh. I spent a year there with my mentor, whose name is Michael Pinsky. I came back to France from 2005, 2009. And then I uh, was recruited at the University of California, Irvine, uh, by the, the former chair there, whose name is Dr. Zef Kane. And someone who's been also a very close mentor of mine, whose name is Michael O'Reilly. Michael O'Reilly was uh, the chief medical officer for companies named uh, Massimo. With, I had working relationship with them, developing some monitoring technologies. Michael was uh, 
the chief medical officer. So the two of them recruited me at UCI in 2009. Um, in 2012, Michael O'Reilly became actually the vice president for health at Apple. So he's the person in charge of all the, the health uh, programs at, uh, at Apple. He's an anesthesiologist. Not everyone knows that uh, the health program at Apple is led by an anesthesiologist. Oh, very cool. And, um, and the, the, the funny part about my training coming to the U.S. is that I only got board certified by the ABA in 2019, September 2019. So I, while I was a vice chair and professor of anesthesiology at UCLA, I would take the IT every every year with the residents. <laughs> and I took my basic exam uh, with the resident. I failed my basic exam the first time I took it. I've never been a very good test taker. And uh, and finally, I got board certified in 2019, September, and I became chair of the department uh, in 2020. So it's probably the shorter uh, time between being board certified and becoming chair of the department. So that's got to be a record. Yeah, that's yeah, fantastic. A little bit of the background. But to be honest, that's to the greatness of the American academic system that gives you this kind of opportunities. I'm very thankful for for this. Well, that's fantastic. And I, I thank you for sharing that story about the test. And I love that because it's such a great demonstration of what we know, which is that these standardized tests really only predict one thing, which is how good are you at taking standardized tests? And they don't have anything to do with how good of a physician you are or how uh, clearly how successful you can be in academic medicine or anything. Right. And yep. yet, yet we have a system that, that has these things as the gatekeeper. And it's a big problem, I think can also create a bias in selection. I mean, we know it's, it's biasing selection. Absolutely. And I'm personally, I'm very passionate about it because of my own, uh, my own experience with it. So yeah. Yeah. So well, that is fair. Discussion to have. I, I love that you shared that. I think it's actually, I think it will, will really provide some um, relief to uh, folks out there who may be struggling with testing or with the basic exam. So, so I'm glad um, that you were willing to do that. Thank you. Tell me a little about um, the system of medical tr- education and training in France as opposed to the U.S. You, you mentioned that the system, the overall health system is different, of course, because it's a single-payer health system and it's a, a guaranteed right, not a privilege, as unfortunately we often struggle with here. But I'm thinking in terms of is, are there differences that you've been able to identify in terms of medical school and residency as it's done there as opposed to as it's done here? Yeah, and I'm going to speak specifically about anesthesiology because that's the specialty I know I know the best. So, sure. so when it comes to the general medical training, first you go to medical school right after high school. So you finish high school, you're 18 years old or 19 years old, and then you go straight to medical school. And and you can to get into medical school is very easy. Uh, everybody is invited. Uh, back in the days, at the end of the first year of medical school, then you take a test. And at the end of this test, you're ranked and they take the top 8%, 7% of your class. So in other words, it's easy to get in medical school, but it's very difficult to pass the first year. Once you've passed the first year, then you have another five years of medical school. So the, the medical school program is six years. Uh, and you don't have to do an undergrad program before you go to medical school. You go straight from high school to medical school. And this, this uh, honestly, I like the American system for that because it gives people with different profiles, with more diverse background than what you have in France where you go straight from high school to medical school. Then at the end of the, the sixth year of medical school, you take another exam that's national where you get ranked nationally. And based on your ranking, you, you choose the specialty and you choose uh, the, the place where you're going to do your residency. And then when it comes to uh, anesthesiology residency, what's different in, in France compared to the United States, which I think really defines what anesthesiologists do, the training is five years, and everybody is double trained in anesthesiology and critical care. 100% of the anesthesiologists in France are the equivalent of board certified in critical care. And right off the bat, when you do that, you 
lot of us consider ourselves as perioperative physicians, where we understand that the role of an anesthesiologist is not only confined to the operating room, but it encompasses everything before the pre-op, and specifically the ICU. And that, to me, was extremely important. I actually chose to, do, to, to go to anesthesiology because of critical care. I initially wanted to be a critical care physician until I discovered anesthesiology, and I really felt in love with, the, with anesthesiology as a specialty. But really, the specialty in his whole, which means uh, the concept of perioperative medicine. So that's um, that's a key difference in terms of training between the United States and uh, and France. Other differences in uh, in training between the French system and the uh, American system, I would say, actually, the test taking is even more brutal in France because you're ranked yeah. compared to your peers, and you're ranked on this kind of the same kind of testing and that is that i felt very i felt very very brutal it's 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 even tougher than 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 in the united states um and that i would say are probably the the main uh, the main difference i think the key difference is that we are all trained in critical care 100 percent of us that is fascinating i didn't know that i love that i actually share that with you i switched from emergency medicine into anesthesiology because i wanted to be a critical care doctor back you you actually can now through emergency medicine, do critical care, but back then you could not. And so because of critical care, I switched into anesthesiology and then I, I ended up really loving anesthesiology as well. But um, it's Same funny thing. how that, yeah, how that works out. I, I had, I knew this about the, um, the exam and I had forgotten now that you mentioned it, that there's this one big exam and then you, based on your score, you choose both a specialty and a location, right? So you might say, I really want to be in Paris but I didn't score high enough to do, you know, OBGYN in Paris, but I did score high enough to do, you know, psychiatry in Paris. So you might choose a different specialty if it got you where you want it to be. Absolutely. And most people choose, they are, they are going to choose the specialty and then they would move to a different place to be able to right. do the specialty they want. But some would do the other way around. But I think the, ma- the vast majority choose based on the specialty. And so you right. have, you know, it, it, it changed actually. And you see that in the United States today in terms of, and with COVID, it's even more because back in the days, really the top residency were in Paris or Lyon, uh, the two biggest city in the in, in in the country. Things have changed tremendously right now. You see, like people want to live away from like big cities because of the cost of living, uh, because of lifestyle, uh, because it's a new generation, and so that has really changed the the the, the, the landscape for this. We we, you, we see the, the the same thing in the United States with like some big cities being so challenging to live in because of the cost of living that it creates a, a shift in how people choose where they are going to train. Interesting. And how long is an anesthesia slash critical care training program in, uh, in, in France? It's five years. Okay. And so is there, years. is there a, is there a huge difference in salary between a trainee and an attending the way there is here? So, so uh, no, I mean, there is a difference, obviously there is a difference, but the difference, you know, everything in terms of like the, the compensation, in the, in the public system in France, which are the, the system that provides training to, uh, to, to residents, the, the salary, the range of compensation for physician is very narrow compared to what you have in the United States. So mm-hmm. uh, then the gap between a trainee and a, and, a, and a faculty, there is a gap, but it's in terms of the absolute value of this gap, it's much lower than what you see in the United States. So I think... Uh, for example, a, a faculty attending in France who works in a public hospital or tra- in a training institution is going to probably make with like calls included and everything in anesthesiology, I would say somewhere around like 5,000 to 6,000 euros per month, right? And the trainee is going to make 
like around 2,000 euros per month. So there is a gap, but the gap is much smaller than what you would see in the United mm. States. And what happens also for the physician is that along the career, even though the, the compensation increase, the, the, the difference between a junior faculty and a senior faculty, this gap is also pretty narrow. Okay. And when you work in a public uh, institution, the compensation across different specialties is the same. Whatever your, your specialty, you get compensated pretty much the same. Interesting. And I wonder if that changes the, um, the push to go into certain specialties. You know, there's a lot of thought here that maybe people go into higher compensation specialties that they would otherwise not have done because of the compensation. And so you still have because you can go to private practice. And then when you go to private practice, the, 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 the gap increases quite significantly. Uh, okay. When people stay in the public sector, usually you stay there because of your commitment, real commitment to academics and so forth. Yeah. Uh, it's becoming more challenging like it is in the United States right now because, again, the cost of living increases, the differential, uh, the gap is, is wider. So academics tend to be a little bit more difficult to recruit and retain people. But it's it's always been it's always been the same. So you tend to select people who are fully fully committed to academic medicine. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's turn to artificial intelligence. How did you first become interested? You mentioned uh, having a mentor who worked for Massimo. I don't know if that was involved, but how did you develop this interest in artificial intelligence and anesthesiology? So I would say that the um, it came. I, I've never been first. I don't code. I have a PhD, but my PhD is in physiology, so I don't have any specific background in computer science. So the computer science, if you will, I, it, in, in my mind, is just a tool to leverage some of the information we have, especially that I started with like physiological information. And so initially my research was focused around monitoring, so developing monitoring systems. So basically you you take a a signal, you extract information from the signal and you display a number on the screen and the physician will or will not make a decision based on this number, right? So that's monitoring. Uh, My expertise has been in trying to take signals that have been existing for a long time, like the pulse oximeter signal, and apply new analytics to to this signal to extract new meaningful clinical information. So that's been my my field of expertise at the beginning. The goal, again, is to put a number on the screen to push this information, and that's why I work with monitoring companies. What I realized, and you you probably start start understanding it in my answer, that putting a number on the screen may or may not change physicians' decision-making or may or may not increase improve patient outcome. What's for sure is that if you put more numbers on the screen, it's never going to improve any patient outcome. If you want to increase improve patient outcome with a monitoring system, you need to tie the monitor to a protocol of care. And that's this concept of goal-directed therapy, right? Can you mm-hmm. take a number on the screen? If you try to optimize this number during the care of a patient, is that going to improve outcome? If the answer to that is yes, that doesn't mean that clinicians are going to follow the protocol constantly. We know there's a lot of evidence-based medicine that's not delivered on a day-to-day basis because physicians do not necessarily follow protocols, either because they don't believe in it or because they don't have the mind uh, span to apply all the protocols at the same time. So that led to the concept in our research of a closed-loop anesthesia. If, if optimizing a number on the screen, a physiological variable, can improve outcome, the, the best way to make it consistently apply is to develop closed-loop automated systems that are going to drive the administration of drugs based on these numbers on the screen and based on the evidence that you develop in clinical trial. So that led me to automation. And from automation, then the next step has been, okay, now if we want to increase and expand the understanding and the, the, the information that we are going to extract from physiological waveform, what can we what kind of analytics can we can we apply? That's why 
we came with computer science and artificial intelligence. And so the, the, the goal eventually is to take analytics, apply to waveforms or EHR data using computer science, and to put this system in, into automated system, closed-loop system. So that's been the evolution of the uh, that led me to artificial intelligence. It's not like I went to artificial intelligence because that was my expertise. It's just I don't have this expertise myself. Sure, that's how you got there. Great. And so you talked, you mentioned closed loop uh, automation as as an example of this. Are there specific ways in which this is already being done in anesthesiology that that you could give as examples of of ways this could happen? So you have first you have automated system everywhere in your life. First, the the whole the fact what made, what keeps you alive right now, Jed, is because you have a closed-up system within your physiology. It's feedback control, feedback, right? Is the glucose control is a is a feedback loop? Your temperature is a feedback loop. So you have closed-up system when you take the elevators, the air conditioner in the street, in the, in the room you are, the cruise control on your car. So when you take the plane, you have closed-up system everywhere. In medicine, we don't have much closed-up system. Uh, these closed-loop systems are different. They are called physiological closed-loop because you control a physiological endpoint with drugs. While, for example, on a plane, you control the altitude, which is a physical physics variable within a physical model That's where the rules are very clear. In physiology, the rules are not that clear. So now we, we still have a few closed-loop systems that we are using specifically in anesthesia. For example, your anesthesia machine. You have a lot of uh, feedback control that maintains, you know, your tidal volume, your pressure, if you have pressure control and everything. This is a feedback control. You set a pressure, deliver a volume. When you set the, when you reach your pressure, you stop delivering the flow and you do that for each respiratory cycle. That's a closed-up system. But if you think about it, it's a lot of physics. We're not controlling really physiology. We are setting a pressure and we're setting a tidal volume. I think the frontier where we want to go is to control the physiology. Where it becomes complex is that physiological rules are not as pure as physical rules. And physiological measurements are not as accurate as physical measurements. For example, measuring the, the cardiac output, it's, 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 it's incredible to think that in 2022, we still don't know how to accurately measure cardiac output. So if you want to control cardiac output by automatic administration of vasopressor and fluid, the complexity that your endpoint, the cardiac output itself, is not measured very accurately. Um, so that's where we want to go. There are systems that exist already, again, but most of them rely on physics, not on physiology. The push is to move to a control based on physiology. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I love the example of cardiac output because we so often mistakenly use blood pressure as an indicator of cardiac output or a flow, but of course that's not, not equivalent. Um, and so that's not great. If we had a way to measure cardiac output effectively, that would be great. And even better if what you're saying is we could have a system that used that and optimize things based on it. So yeah, I, I see what you mean, which is that we first have to be able to measure things well in order to use them. Now there are, I believe, I, I actually haven't ever used one, but I believe, and you tell me, but I believe there are systems that um, are closed loop, management of anesthesia in terms of keeping, let's say, a propofol at a certain um, plasma level, uh, or they may be based on a, a monitor like a EEG waveform. Are those, are those in use? I think, I, I think maybe in Europe so, they are. So one thing that uh, needs to be clarified is the, so you have systems that are commercially available in Europe and other parts of the world, in South America and Asia and Africa. And it's called, the, it's the concept of target control infusion. Yeah, that's what you're talking about when you say, so you have system where 
if you will, the administration of propofol. When I was trained in Europe, again, for example, being an anesthesiologist in Europe, I used target control infusion for propofol. So when I was doing a TIVA, you come to the US, when you do a TIVA, you set basically a flow on your pump for propofol, 100 mics per kilo and per minute, right? So you have, you have a flow right. of, uh, of, of, of propofol administration. That's not based in any way on the on patients outside of the patient's weight, right? You put right. micron per kilo and per minute. That's the weight. That's the only variable. It's not personalized in any way. Um, the system, the target control infusion system, you, 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 you adjust your propofol cons- uh, administration based on the plasmatic concentration of propofol that you want to achieve. So you're going to say, for example, I want a, t- a plasmatic concentration of propofol at four micrograms per milliliter. So you've never thought this way, you uh, Jed, because you've never used this system. So that's science right. for you, right? Right, right. So, but, but a lot of studies have been done in the 80s and 90s. In the US, you have actually like physicians in the United States who have been pioneers of this target control infusion, talking about like Stephen Schaffer, uh, Talmadge Egan, uh, where, if you will, these groups of uh, scientists have developed abacuses based on patients' height, weight, gender, and age, that tells you for one level of plasmatic concentration associated to these demographic variables, you need to have this flow on your propofol, and then you're going to have this uh, plasmatic concentration of propofol that's associated with uh, anesthesia sleep, depth of anesthesia. And so target control infusion, you set a goal for plasmatic concentration that you do not measure, that's evaluated, and the system is going to get you there. Um, The close group we are talking about is different. Closed-loop system is that you measure the depth of anesthesia using, for example, the BIS, and you could argue whether the BIS is or is not a good measure of the depth of anesthesia, but let's put it as a primary hypothesis, right? You measure the BIS, and you administer propofol in a closed-loop system in order to maintain the BIS between, let's say, 40 and 50. And the propofol concentration and flow is going to be changed only to maintain the BIS within this this measure. It's very different from target control infusion. Target control infusion is you, you deliver based on an estimation of the plasmatic concentration, that, not on the effect side, on the effect of the, the, the problem. Does that make sense? Yes, and thank you for clear. I, I did not realize that. I actually thought these tar- measured plasma levels actually actively measured them like a much like a closed loop, you know, glucose management system that would measure glucose in the blood and, and release insulin based on that. So I'm glad you clarified that. So that doesn't exist yet. What, what I'm thinking does not actually exist. The full closed loop it ex- system exists, but they are, and they are used in some places in, in the clinical setting, but almost all the time they are used in, in clinical research settings and sometimes okay. pretty large scales clinical research setting. I mean, we've developed systems like this. We've worked in, in Belgium, in France. There's a group in India that's pretty strong actually that does like multi-center randomized trials with closed-loop system a group in canada uh, but it's not commercially available okay how about um, a system that does the same with blood pressure in other words maybe a norepinephrine drip that is that titrates itself based on map does that exist stay with us we'll be right back with dr kennison's answer to that question at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, 
engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. We're back now with Dr. Kennison's answer to the question of whether we have a closed loose system for regulating blood pressure. So that system that, for example, we've developed system like this. We've done studies with system like we've used it on patients pretty large number of patients, still not commercially available. The good thing about the, the blood pressure and the control of, so if you like for those listening and practicing anesthesia, the way you do today is you, you take a phenylephrine drip, put it on your infusion device, and you set uh, a flow, right? 100 micrograms per minute, let's say, or 50 mics per minute. And then you see the blood pressure is going to go up. And after five minutes, you're going to readjust up or down to achieve your target. So the, 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 the concept of the closed loop vasopressor administration would be you put your, you prepare your drip the same way, but instead of like just starting with a concentration, you start with a, a, a target for your blood pressure. You say, I want my minute pressure at 70 plus or minus five, let's say. And then you tell your drug infusion device, I want the flow to be between zero and 100 mics per minute. Anything in between, you let the computer take care of it. What you do, you set the target for the blood pressure. If at some point the system is about to go above 100 mics per minute, the system would alarm you and would ask you, am I allowed to go above it? And then you decide whether you want to take over, do something else, or just let it go. So that's the. to me, that would be uh, the how we should do. We should be goal-oriented in how we manage here the blood pressure of a patient and let the machine do the mundane task of adjusting the, the flow. What we do today, we value our job based on adjusting this flow, changing the buttons, turning the canister of Cibarain, and sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, we, we don't focus as much on the goal of care. And I think the idea of closed-up system is to return the table where we really focus on the goals and the process, we let, leave it to some computers. Under our supervision, of course, but that's the, that's the idea. This is same for vasopressor and, and blood pressure control. Again, they are com- not commercially available. This is research. One thing I want to say that the blood pressure is one of the only physiological variables that is measured very accurately and consistently. Yeah. There is a pretty high level of safety. If you were to do the same thing for cardiac output or the depth of anesthesia and bees, it becomes it's, the, the output is not as clear, clearly measured. Right. And that's where that's what you started saying, which is that you have to have good measurement of variables to use or else the whole system is not going to be reliable. Right. So great. Now you have, uh, just if I can say you have, like you asked me about closed up system in in medicine, outside of anesthesia, one of the biggest, most impactful closed up system are the insulin pump, Mm -hmm. measuring the glucose and then delivering insulin automatically to maintain the glucose at certain level. And you know, what's very interesting is that in terms of measuring the output, what you want to control, which is the glucose level. One of the key challenges with the development of this technology has been the use of this technology at night when patients sleep. You know why? Because the measurement of glucose non-invasively or mini-invasively for a long time was not very accurate. So mm. the overshoot of the closed-up system, is, which is when the patient receives too much insulin, 
you had a, you had a safety net behind it during the day, which is the patient feel it. Right. And when they feel it, they would adjust their pump. The challenge with the development of this closed loop was at night when patients sleep, because then you don't have the patient to serve as a safety net and change the administration. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so they, they have they developed a more accurate yeah, way to measure uh, that glucose? Yeah. Absolutely. It's because the, the, the measurements for the glucose monitoring is becoming more and more accurate and thus allow to have a more uh, robust closed-loop system. Great, great. That makes a lot of sense. So we need accurate measurements and then we need a system that can target, a, you know, a, a, what some one of those measurements that we know is a safe and uh, effective way to do it. Now, let me ask you about the evidence for all of this. So it sounds great, but I'm assuming that you wouldn't be spending so much time and effort on it if there wasn't a reasonable uh, support for the fact that this could actually be better. So tell me about that. What, what evidence do we have to support the fact that this could potentially be beneficial to patient care? So actually, there's, there's actually very, very little evidence today, except that, and I would argue that we have to be very careful with, with what we call evidence, right? And so sure. jumping from clinical evidence to developing the technologies to enforce this clinical evidence. So for example, I'll give you an example, like going back to critical care. 20 years ago, you would go to a critical care meeting. It was all about tight glucose control in the ICU, right? You have to, you have to maintain glucose within narrow limits that improves patient outcome. If we had the technology to do tight glucose control in the ICU with a closed-up system 20 years ago, we'd have jumped on it. And we would have helped patients. Because 10 years later, we learned that actually tight glucose control can help patients. Right. So I would say the, 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 the closed-up system per se is not as important in terms of patient outcome than the clinical evidence that we have behind uh, the development of this closed-up system. So, for example, today, that's, I'm trying to really explain this with the glucose control. But you could, like, for example, today in anesthesia, tons of paper showing the relationship between hypotension and postoperative outcome. Would make sense, then, to try to develop automated system to improve the type blood pressure control of patients during anesthesia. Would that translate into a better outcome? I, it, it, I, don't, I'm, I don't know if it's a question that relates to the technology itself or to actual clinical evidence of whether or not we should maintain blood pressure within narrow limits. Does it make sense? Right. But if we show for sure that tight blood pressure control improves outcome, then the leap toward, okay, let's develop a system that's going to do it for us. I think it's a, it, it's a, it makes sense. Right. And, and do we know that, I mean, it seems like it must, but do we know, has it been shown that these systems can do a better job of keeping to a tight yeah. goal than so a human? That in the control engineering, whether it's like uh, in engineering outside of medicine or now with closed loop physiological system, that's, that, this evidence is pretty strong. Right. It's pretty An automated system will do much better than a human being and maintaining a variable within narrow limits over a long period of time. Okay, so we know that a, a system can can keep to a tighter goal or keep more accurately to a goal than a human can, which makes sense. Yeah. What we don't know definitively yet is whether doing that improves outcomes, though, as you said, we do have a lot of data suggesting that not having hypotension in the OR is a good thing. And so if you can, therefore, help prevent hypotension by keeping to a, a better goal more consistently, it yeah. should translate to better outcomes. We just don't know that for sure. Yet. Uh, yeah, there will be a little bit more nuance. I would not say that we know that hypotension causes bad outcome. I think I would just say that we, we know that there is a relationship between hypotension and bad outcome. Sure, sure. So there's an association between low blood pressure in the OR. And so we can we can 
think that maybe being able to avoid that might be might have better outcomes. We just don't know that for sure yet. Don't know that for sure. Okay. And is that some of the work that you're you have ongoing to try to show so, that? For, for me, my, my personal research, I'm more interested in the technology development, the technological leap and everything than on the, the clinical trial part of it. Okay. So I would leave the clinical trial part of it done by, by clinical trialists. Uh, and some are very, very good at it. It's not, it's, it's never been my, 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 it's never been my expertise. I've been, my expertise has been on developing technologies or innovative solution, not on the, I've done some clinical trials, but it's not really my strength. Now clinical trial is becoming a science in itself. Sure. So could argue if I were like really in terms of research, like uh, the full steam empire building research, I would have part of our research would be the clinical trial part, the clinical trial arm of our research. It just, uh, now, it's not an expertise that we decided to develop within our Sure. But of course, once you have the technology available, people can then do the, stu- the, the actual trials. Absolutely. Um, and is, is, are, is that, where do you think we are? I mean, do you think it's going to be, you know, in the near future that we'll see some of those trials in the next 10 years or, or is it farther out than that? No, I think in the next 10 years, we will see these trials for sure. I think we've, we've seen some small scale trials already. We've seen actually some multi-center trials with close-up anesthesia coming from India. In the next 10 years, you'll have large scale trials coming from like uh, the United States, Europe, other countries. I think that's, yeah, I think it's going to, to come. One thing that, and this, and these trials will be needed. It's also something that's interesting too, because you could argue, why, do we need these trials to, you know, if you, you have like a technology like the pulse oximeter that was developed, if you like 1986, it became standard from the SA. The technology was created, I think, in 1982. Or, um, so the, the, the time between the creation of the device and the becoming a standard has been like very, very short. Mm-hmm. And, and you have studies. I'm going to phrase this very carefully. I'm not saying that there is no study showing the positive impact of pulse oximeter on the outcome of patient. I'm going to say there are studies actually showing that there is no difference in outcome. So there were studies, <laughs> uh, clinical trial, large scales, 20,000 patients, Showing no difference in outcome, it's still a standard. If it, if we were if the, if this device was invented today, we today what we expect from like evidence based medicine, it's very likely that it would take years and years and years for the pulse ox to become a standard. That makes sense because mm-hmm. it's very difficult to show that the monitoring system improves the outcome. Sure, yeah, that's really interesting. So we'll see, but uh, it will be interesting to see what those studies show and and um, go from there. Now, I, I think. A lot of people, uh, I'm sure, hear about these systems and say, well, that's the end of my job as an anesthesiologist, right? A, com- a computer is going to be doing this, then what am I going to be needed for? And I know you don't buy into that, but tell me why. What do you say to people who, uh, who say that? Well, what I say to, first, I, I really don't believe that. First, I just want to make it clear because I feel that what we do as anesthesiologists and critical care physicians is much, 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 much more than adjusting the uh, the pump for the phenylephrine or turning the canister for sevorane or adjusting the anesthesia machine. What we do is the holistic management of our patients, pre-op, intra-op, post-op. That relates to what I told you about the training that I received personally. Right. If we believe our job, the core part of our profession is to adjust the phenylephrine drip to turn the canister of the sevorane, if that were our only job, yes, the machine will replace us. But it's not. 
Uh, we, we see now that, I mean, with like the COVID-19 crisis, we've seen more than ever the role that we anesthesiologists and critical care physicians play in society, how we interact with patients. I've been personally like, when you had the, the COVID-19 crisis, the relationship between patients, family, healthcare providers through iPad, through technology, really emphasized the importance of the human connection in the, in the care of a patient. No machine is going to do that. So this is the core of our profession. The core of our profession is not to prepare the drip. It's not to change the pump. The core of our profession is to be taking care of patients holistically from pre-op, intra-op, post-op, system management, safety. We are anesthesiologists. We play a role as a department in, in institution that goes well beyond what we do in the operating room. That's the, the value that we bring. And so, no, the, these systems are just going to help us do a better job. And actually, they could help us focus even more on what matters for patient care. Again, blood pressure management in the operating room, a little bit of it is adjusting the pump. A big part of it is understanding what is the goal. For this specific patient at this specific time, what goal should I have for this patient? That's where, if we do that, our profession is not at risk in any way. Yeah, and it seems to me like the other part is, as you said, what is, what is the goal for this patient and this procedure, but also in this part of the procedure, right? So it, the machine can't possibly know that the surgeons are about to get, you know, clamp the aorta or they're about to clamp the IVC or, you know, whatever it is. So you have to know what's coming, understand what's happening. Like you said, focusing on the patient and the surgery that's happening and then be able to adjust the goal over the course of the procedure. 100%. And so that's why I think this system are just here to adjust augments what we do. But again, the strategy of care, the, the goals of care, it's going to be uh, for the physician to do. I don't, I personally don't believe much, you know, back in the days, there was this device, the sedasis that was here to develop propofol for uh, like sedation during uh, colonoscopies and GI procedures. That was a very disruptive move that was clearly targeted at replacing the skills of an anesthesiologist. I personally think that I would not go there. I would not support something. If I were like the ASA, I would not support this. I know it's a bold statement, but I would be I would go against that because that's, I think, the safety of this system. Like This is really at risk. But developing system to just autopilot some of the drug administration under the control of the anesthesiologist, that personally, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of this. Yeah, it seems to me like what you're describing is definitely not a replacement, but is, a, as you said, an augmentation, is an ability to do some of the mundane tasks that don't require much in the way of skill so that the tasks that do require skill, the focus that does require high-level thinking can really be the bulk of the focus of the, of the person in that room. Yeah, that's at least for the, for the way we deliver anesthesia in, in, in today. I think that's that where I see the value of these devices. Then you have some research, for example, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army are very interested in developing like fully automate, automated system for rescue and resuscitation for obvious reasons, right? That we, but but in civilian medicine, it's the approach is completely different. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So when you think about the future of anesthesiology, um, obviously we talked a little bit about the fact that we may be seeing more of these systems, uh, but I'm curious, you know, if you look forward 10, 20 years more. You know, what do you see uh, if you had to say, and of course, no one can know for sure, but if you were, if you had to say, what do you think will be different? What will we be seeing down the road? Well, that's a, it's a difficult question. What I, what I genuinely feel is that actually, I think the human part of what we do is going to become more and more important. And actually the development of machine around us is going to help us refocus on the human part of medicine as anesthesiologists and critical care physicians. I think again, the, 
before the COVID-19 pandemics, there was like a lot of buzz around like big data, AI in medicine. A lot of companies like Google, Amazon developed like, uh, you know, ventures to tackle the issues with healthcare. Not many of them succeeded. I don't know if you followed in the news. It's a, and, and during the COVID pandemics, like the human part of medicine is at the core. I mean, we've seen it with the shortage of physicians, shortage of, of, of nurses. The core asset of medicine are the people. Yeah. And so we need to develop technologies to empower the people. And in no way, this technology should be at, in any point here to be considered as a threat to what we do, but more as a way to augment uh, what human beings are doing. And so I think we are going to be, as an anesthesiologist, again, more involved in the perioperative care, in the ICU, in the pre-op, the post-op, telemedicine. But this is a way to reconnect even more with our patients. I think uh, we are going to be... Uh, I, I'm a strong believer in the team care model, working with CRNAs. I'm, I'm a strong believer of that. Uh, that's how I, I grew up as a physician in France. I strongly feel that we work as a team. And so I believe that's going to be stronger and stronger. I don't think there is any way around this. Um, and I think we, we're going to have to change a little bit the way we train our, our residents and fellows uh, in a way that's going to bring people from different background different you know places that are going to choose our specialty for the for really the right reasons and change and refocus on the human part of what we do and that's my view on it i mean again that's it's 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 a it's a mix between kind of a vision and also the core values that i have as a person too yeah no i i think that's great and so true <clears throat> you you correctly i think pointed out how much that's come to the fore with covid and and i hope we don't lose that that reminder of how important that is to what we do I'm curious, do you think there's a future in which critical care training becomes integrated into anesthesiology training here the way it is in France? Or alternatively, I have heard people talk about, uh, you know, a proposal for a, a separate residency in critical care. But, uh, you know, I think so much of it is tied into what we do that I wonder if that will ever be the case here. Um to be honest, Jed, I've, I don't know. I've never thought about this question really much. I know, but again, I share my background with you. I personally like the fact that I was trained in critical care. Whether it's the right thing to do for for, for every trainee is going to anesthesiology, I mean, that's a loaded question. I would have to think more about it. I don't have a short answer for this one. That's okay. Fair enough. I don't either. I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, well, this has been really wonderful, and I, and I know that um, we have a time limit, so I want to turn to the part of our show where we make uh, random recommendations, though I think you may have more of a story or something you'd like to share, um, but please, what, what would you like to leave the audience with? So the, uh, the, the story, when we, when we started this, so for the people listening, at the beginning, you asked me, okay, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to ask you this question, so I had to think, what am I going to share? I'm going to share one, one thing that struck me when I was a teenager in France. Um, my best friend from childhood, one of my like few best friend is uh, he studied philosophy and he's a, he's a philosophy chair actually now in Paris. And so when he turned 18 or 19, his mentor was a philosopher in France. And one night the mentor was interviewed on the radio. And, uh, and so we were 19 and he told me how oh, we need to go spend the evening together and listen to my mentor on the radio. He's going to be interviewed. He's a very famous philosopher. His name is Jean-Luc Marion. So we turned on the radio and everything. So, and the first question that the interviewers asked this philosopher, they ask him, Jean-Luc Marion, are you happy? In France, happy is uh, heureux. It's to be happy is to be heureux. And Jean-Luc Marion answered right away, he said, no, we are not here to be happy. Because in French, the word happiness, the bonheur, 
it means it, it relates to the, the Latin word be, B-E-A, the beatitude, it's to be full. Mm. And he said that uh, when you're full uh, with this feeling of happiness, by definition, when you're full is you cannot add. And he said, for me, my vision of happiness is a place where you can always add and you can add forever. Mm. And, uh, and that's something that had a big, big impact on me when I was a teenager on the fact that um, happiness is a, is a place where you can f- forever be fulfilled, that you never feel full. And uh, that's, that's, that's why I think academics and academic medicine for me has been such a great place because I feel every day you, you, can, you learn something new. Every day you add to who you are or you add to others and you see uh, people grow. And in, to be happy in academia, you need to love watching people grow. And I think that's, that's the beauty of it. And to be honest, I think that the American academic system is a great system for that. It's still a, it's a beautiful academic system. And I'm very proud and privileged to be here. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, I, I tell our residents all the time that they will, the goal is not to finish residency having learned it all. There's no way that could ever be possible. It's to have the tools to keep learning forever, right? To feel like you, you have the backbone that you can then build on forever. And that if you can do that, you know, you'll, you'll continue, as you said, to, to never feel done. And, and that's really key. It's also what I love about academic medicine is I learn something new every day. I learn from my residents. I learn from my colleagues. I learn from our students. It's just so much fun to, you never know what new thing you're going to come across in any given day. And, and um, same with this podcast and, and why I love having people like you on. And I, I continually am learning and love it. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I'll, I'll take a total left turn um, and say that uh, what I'll recommend is a, a TV show. I may have recommended this before. Uh, the show is called This Is Us. And I'm sure folks, uh, many people out there are listening to it. But I'll say that if you've lost track of it or if you've never listened to uh, never watched it, uh, they're on the final season right now of the show This Is Us. And it is really just an incredible journey over the uh, six, I think, seasons that they've done. And, and it really, the characters are so rich and they've grown and changed and uh, and you can watch the kids have grown and and there's all these different kind of um, relationship issues that they've dealt with over time it's very well done at times over the course of these six seasons my wife and I we have laughed we have cried it's very emotionally uh, compelling and now we're coming to the end so if you, if you want a great show that'll really wrap you up check out this is us especially this final season uh, as it wraps up um, well Dr. Kennison thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show it's really been a pleasure Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. 
Ryan Okonski is our social media manager, and Drs. Kimia Kashkuli and April Liu are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.